You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 317, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Education for Special Needs, The Curative Education Course, 12 Lectures, translated by Anna Moise. This is Lecture 5, given in Dornach on the 30th of June, 1924. You've been able to see how certain anomalies in the soul, in the inner life, that present as symptoms, do so in an indefinite way in children and will later on develop in a particular way. I was able to draw your attention to the way in which something which later emerges as a hysterical phenomenon shows itself in a wholly unusual, as yet indefinite way in childhood. To be able to form a proper opinion about the anomalies specific to childhood, we must look at the whole relationship between life before birth, which brings the karma impulse into physical life, as it were, and the gradual development of the child in the first two periods of life, and perhaps even beyond them, that is, in the first three periods of the child's life. Today we will first of all prepare ourselves and go more into theory. After this we will be able to consider everything else that is needed by means of practical examples. Dr. Wegman will make a boy available to us who has been treated at the Institute of Clinical Medicine for some time, and he will make it possible for us to demonstrate some highly characteristic aspects. Now, to show you what you need to know beforehand, I want to draw a diagram of the human organism, the whole human organization, for you. See Plate 7. To be really clear, I want to draw the eye organization always in red, I'd then draw the astral organization in violet, like this, and the ether organization in yellow, and I'll draw the physical organization in white, like this. Let us therefore be absolutely exact about our subject for today, doing our best to consider the matter very accurately. It is not true with regard to the human organization to say, quote, there is the eye organization, there is the astral organization, there is the ether organization, close quote, and so on. For the matter is like this. Imagine an entity organized in such a way that the eye organization comes first on the outside, then further in comes the astral organization, then the ether organization, and then the physical organization. So that we would have an entity that presents its eye organization to the outside, with the astral organization moving more to the inside, further in the ether organization, and the physical organization pushing its way furthest in. See plate 7, the middle part. Let us put another arrangement beside this, where the eye organization would be at the very center, the astral organization radiating out, as it were, still further out, the ether organization and then the physical organization. See plate 7, top left. You see, we now have two polar opposite entities, as it were. Looking at these two polar opposite entities, you can say to yourself, 
quote, the second entity will show a powerful physical organization on the outside, with the etheric organization still playing into it. Then the astral and eye organizations disappear more toward the inside, close quote. This being the case, the configuration can change a little. The configuration of my second drawing may be like this. We have the physical organization fully developed in its upper part and open down below, atrophied. We have the etheric organization in its turn developing a bit further than the physical organization down below, but still atrophied. We can have the astral organization reaching further down here and the eye organization going down like a kind of thread. For the spherical arrangement we have here, above left in the diagram, can definitely look like this. See plate 7 below left. Let me make the whole thing more easy to understand by drawing the eye organization like this here, then the astral organization, the ether organization, and the physical organization. And we will now add on the other entity. We will add this other entity by first of all making the eye organization, which in this case is outside, a bit more configured. That is how it always is with development in the natural world and the world altogether, that something which is spherical, circular, becomes configured in one way or another. Going more to the inside, I have the astral organization following the eye organization, still further in the ether organization, and finally right inside the physical organization. See plate 7 on the right. You now have the first entity transformed into the human head. You have the second entity transformed into the human metabolism and limbs. And it is indeed true that in the human head organization we have something where the eye hides right inside, and relatively speaking also the astral body, with the physical body and the ether body showing themselves configured toward the outside, presenting the form of the countenance. In the system of metabolism and limbs, on the other hand, you have a situation where really the eye is vibrating outside in the organism's sensations of warmth and pressure, and the astral body vibrates inward, starting from the eye. Then further inside things get etheric, and in the long bones things are then physical in the inward direction. Centrifugally, therefore, from eye out to physical body, we have the arrangement in the head organization. Centripetally, from outside in, from eye to physical, we have the organization of metabolism and limbs. And, flowing one into the other all the time, so that one simply does not know if it is coming from outside in or inside out, we have the arrangement in the rhythmic system, which lies in between. The rhythmic system is half head, half system of metabolism and limbs. It is more metabolism and limbs when we inhale, and more head system when we exhale. So you see that between systole and diastole, things go in such a way that we may say, quote, head system, limb system, exhalation, inhalation, close quote. You see, therefore, that we really have two completely opposite entities in us, with the rhythmic organism 
mediating between them. What is the consequence? Something that is extraordinarily important. Imagine we take something in through the head. Say the words of another individual are conveyed to us. Initially, this goes into the eye, into the astral body, but things interact in the organism, and the moment where something is touched on here, with an impression made in the one eye organization, this will also vibrate into the other eye organization. And the moment something strikes the one astral organization, it also vibrates through into the other astral organization. If this were not the case, my friends, we would have no memory, for all impressions we gain of the outside world have their mirror images in the organization of metabolism and limbs. And when I gain an impression from outside, it vanishes from the head organization, which is arranged centripetally, from the physical inward toward the eye. The eye must maintain itself. It cannot go on for hours on a single impression, or it would grow identical with that impression. But down below the impressions remain, and they have to come up again there when people remember. If you consider this, you will see there is the following possibility. The whole lower system, being the polar opposite of the upper system, may not be sufficiently strong in a person. This results in impressions. These impressions do not imprint themselves deeply enough in the lower system. The eye gains an impression. If all is normal, this imprints itself in the lower system, and it is only brought up when remembered. If the system down below, the eye organization, which goes round all the periphery, is too weak, the impressions do not imprint themselves sufficiently, and the part which does not enter into the eye organization shines back up, radiates into the head. We have a child who is organized in that way. On one occasion we showed him a watch for the first time. This interested him, but his organization of limbs is too weak. The impression does not enter in completely, but shines back. I now spend time with the child who keeps saying, quote, The watch is beautiful. Close quote. I have hardly gone a few words further, and he says again, quote, The watch is beautiful. Close quote. He comes back to it. In bringing up the child, we must pay attention to such traits, which are sometimes barely perceptible, but are extraordinarily important. For if we do not manage to strengthen the weak organization of limbs and metabolism, this will get worse and worse, this striking back. And in later life, the paranoid disease connected with compulsive ideas will develop. It then turns into fixed, consolidated, compulsive ideas. The child knows that these are quite out of place in his inner life, but he cannot turn them away. Why is he unable to turn them away? Because the conscious inner life is up there, but the unconscious life down below is uncontrolled. It rejects certain ideas, and compulsive ideas develop. You see, we are dealing here with a poorly developed system of metabolism and limbs. What does that mean? A poorly developed system of metabolism and limbs is one that prevents protein from containing the right amount of sulfur in the human organism. A metabolic system, therefore, 
which develops low sulfur protein. For that may be there. The stoichiometry is not the usual one. Then it happens that compulsive ideas begin to show themselves in the child's organism, as I have described it. However, the reverse may also be the case. The disposition of the system of metabolism and limbs may be such that it attracts too much sulfur. Then the protein contains too much sulfur. We have carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen in the protein, and relatively too much sulfur. The revelation of this metabolic organization is essentially influenced by the composition of the substances it contains, and we get the urge not to reject everything, but rather the opposite. The abundance of sulfur causes impressions to be absorbed too strongly. They make themselves too much at home. That is something different again from being held up on the surface of the organs, something which I spoke of on the earlier occasion. This piling up on the surface causes spasms, seizures. But here we are dealing not with things piling up, but with impressions being sucked in. And the consequence is that the impressions vanish. We cause the child to have impressions, but we cannot do anything. Certain impressions, depending on their nature, vanish into the sulfur-rich protein. And it is only if we manage to get these impressions out of the sulfur-containing protein again that we establish a certain balance in the spirit, soul, and body organism. For this disappearance of impressions into sulfurousness does indeed cause a most unsatisfactory state of mind, for it causes inner excitement. It excites in a subtle, gentle way, making the whole organism tremble most subtly inside. You see, I have said on a number of occasions that psychoanalysis is dilettantism in the extreme, where the psychoanalyst does not know the soul or the spirit or the body or the ether body. He has no idea as to what is going on, but merely gives a description. And being unable to do more than describe, he merely says, quote, Things have vanished down below. We must fetch them up again. Close quote. Strangely enough, materialism does not help us to explore the properties of material things. Otherwise, people would know that the existing situation has its basis in the protein in the will organism having too much sulfur in it. The peculiar nature of physical matter is discovered only with the help of spiritual science. And so it would indeed be a good thing if someone who has to bring up children with anomalies developed an eye, E-Y-E, to see if a child was rich or poor in sulfur. We'll be able to speak of many very different forms of abnormality in the psyche, but we should gain the possibility, really, to feel compelled to follow a particular trail when specific symptoms appear. When I am asked to bring up a child where I see that impressions do initially create problems, this may of course be due to conditions like those I have been describing these last days, but it may also be due to the situation described today. How then may I proceed? First of all, I look at the child. You've got to know him or her. You need to get to know the child. I first look at the child and take one of the most superficial symptoms, the color of the hair. 
If the child's hair is black, I need not ask much if he or she is rich in sulfur. For when a child's hair is black, then he or she will at best be low in sulfur. And if there are anomalous symptoms, I will have to look for them in a sphere other than high sulfur levels, at most in the low sulfur levels of black-haired children. If there are symptoms of anomaly as well, I will have to look for these in some other sphere, and not in high sulfur levels. Yet in a fair or red-haired child, my search would go in the direction of high sulfur levels and proteins. Fair hair means there is too much sulfur. Black hair, that the human organism has distinct iron levels. We are thus able to study anomalous, in quotes, states of mind and soul, even at the level of physical substantiality. Right. Let us consider such a fiery volcano, a child with high sulfur levels, who sucks the impressions into the region of the will, as it were, so that they become set there and cannot get out again. You will soon notice this in a child. The child will be subject to states of depression, of melancholy. The impressions that lie hidden within are a torment. We have to get them to the surface, not by psychoanalysis in the present sense, but psychoanalytically in the right sense. We can do this by familiarizing ourselves with the things that are more or less vanishing in the child. We need to look at the child who presents, on the one hand, with inner excitement, and on the other with a certain outward apathy, in such a way that we are fully aware what this child remembers easily and what he or she lets vanish inside. Things which the child does not recall should as far as possible be presented to him or her in rhythmic repetition. A great deal can be done in this respect, my friends, and sometimes in a much simpler way than you may think for healing and teaching. The two are, of course, related. Do not depend so much on producing all kinds of mixtures of a mental or physical kind, but on knowing what will really help. This is also why we don't find things easy with our medicines. A physician is quite right, of course, in demanding that we tell him what they are, for that is something we would wish to know. But our medicines are, as a rule, used because we know what will help, being simple substances, and anyone can copy them as soon as we've said what they are. If you are, at the same time, hoping to work economically, you are caught in a dilemma. It is a matter, therefore, of truly knowing what needs to be used, truly to discover this. In the Walder School I have quite often seen that there are children who show apathy, in a sense, but then again also a state of excitement. In Mr. Killian's class, for instance, we had a really queer customer in this respect. He was excited and apathetic at the same time. It has got better by now. When he was in class one, he is now in class five, his apathy was so evident that one could not easily present things to him. He would not take them in, finding it hard to learn and being slow about it. But almost as soon as Mr. Killian had walked away from the boy's seat at the back and was bending down to another child, Feuerstein would suddenly come up behind and whack his bottom. So he was at the same time mercurial, inwardly, in his will and intellectually apathetic. Now, you see, there are many of these children who show these traits to a greater or lesser degree. 
The point is that with such children the power of absorbing external impressions is as a rule limited to quite specific kinds of impressions that have a specific typical character. If you then have a good idea, and this will come to you if your attitude is right, you will, for instance, find a particular sentence which is right for the child. This can be remarkably effective. It is just a matter of directing all the child's endeavors in a particular way. This is something the teacher will have to achieve. He will easily do so if he does not want to be too clever, if he wants to live in such a way that he has a clear picture of the world, does not think too much about it, but takes it as he sees it. Just imagine, and this is something which must be part of your state of mind if you wish to teach children with anomalies, how boring it is to have to operate over and over again with a few concepts a person has. It is terribly boring and dull, the mental life of many people, because they have to operate with just a few concepts. Humanity is getting too far into decadence with those few concepts. It is really hard for today's poets to find rhymes, for it has all been rhymed before. It is the same with the other arts. Echoes everywhere, because everything has really been gone through. Think of how Richard Strauss, famous and infamous, put all kinds of things in the orchestra so that it would not be the same old things again. On the other hand, it is really interesting, I would say, just to study the shapes of all kinds of noses. Everyone has a different nose, and one can develop an eye, E-Y-E, for all kinds of shapes that noses have. There you have vast variety. It is then also possible to let concepts come inwardly alive, always moving on from one thing to another. Well, I have just taken the shapes of noses. If you develop a sense for the things you see, you will gradually develop an inner mood, where ideas do come to you as occasion arises. And you will find, my friends, that when you come to experience the world in such a way, seeing it rather than thinking it, you will find that if you have a child who is inwardly sulfurous and active and outwardly apathetic, in seeing the configuration of the child, something will come to mind that will give you the right idea. You will have the feeling that every morning you have to say, quote, the sun is shining on the mountain, close quote, to the child, or something like that, maybe something quite ordinary. What matters is that something like this is coming to the child rhythmically from outside. If it comes rhythmically from outside, everything sulfurous in the child is relieved and will be more free. With children like these, who need to be protected in their tender years so that they will not later become the favorite objects of psychoanalysts, we achieve a great deal with these children if we rely on their rhythmic nature and we teach them something again and again coming from outside. But you see, it is effective if we just make something like this a general rule. At our Waldorf school, lessons start with a verse, and that in itself is a rhythmic sequence day by day and spreads through the life of ideas in a particular way. It will simply open up and relieve much indeed of the excessive absorption in the organism. To treat children with anomalies in the right way, it is important to put them in particular groups every morning. If their number is small, one may initially take them all together. 
and something quite marvelous can result if you let the children say a verse that is like a prayer, even if there are some among them who are unable to say anything. You get a wonderful harmonizing effect in something that gets to be like a chorus. It will above all be a matter of using rhythmic repetition to create certain impressions in children for whom impressions tend to vanish, changing about every three or four weeks so that you are again and again bringing impressions to them from outside and thus free things inwardly, so that their protein, too, will gradually get out of the habit of holding greater amounts of sulfur. What is behind this? Behind it is that the inner life does not give the impressions back. This means that something is coming up from below which is too weak, which is something negative. If we bring in something powerful from above, we stimulate the weak principle here to be more active. See plate 8. Let us assume that the opposite is the case, and we are dealing with children who already have the first beginnings of compulsive ideas. The radiating back of impressions is too powerful. There is not enough sulfur in the plasma. There we must indeed do the opposite. It is then particularly effective if we find that the same sentence, the same impression, is coming to the child again and again, that we again create an impression from outside of which we think instinctively that it may be just right for this child. But now bring it to the child in a very low murmur, in a whisper. The treatment may thus be, quote, just look, that is red, close quote. The child, quote, the watch is beautiful, close quote. The teacher, quote, you must pay attention to the red, close quote. The child, quote, the watch is beautiful, close quote. Try now to repeat a particular phrase, your voice getting lower and lower, perhaps using words that will simply paralyze the other. Quote, forget the watch, forget the watch, forget the watch, close quote. Murmur this to the child and you'll see bit by bit with this murmuring, with this rhythmically murmuring denial of the compulsive idea, that the compulsive idea will give way, getting quieter and quieter. The strange thing is that it grows fainter when said aloud, gradually fading, and in the end the child will get over it. So this is again something we can deal with, and extraordinarily much can be done with our simple treatment of the mind. Yes, one just has to know these things. For imagine that in an ordinary school you have a class where some children have the disposition to develop compulsive ideas, but it is still slight. They are not put in a class for the less gifted, but stay in their class. But the teacher is a thunderer, making such a roar that the walls fall down. In that case, the children suffering from compulsive ideas will really go off their heads. That would not have happened if the teacher had known that he must keep his voice down when circumstances demand, and that he should have murmured quietly to the children. It is most important that we behave in an appropriate way toward the children. In this kind of situation, mental treatment may easily be combined with a regular kind of treatment. If we have a child in whom impressions vanish, it would be good to say to ourselves, quote, well, we want above all to combat the powerful tendency to develop sulfur in their protein, close quote. 
We can do this by providing the right diet, giving much fruit, for instance, or much of the kind of foods that derive from fruit. We actually encourage their sulfurous nature. If we give them a diet connected with root principles, connected with everything that is not rich in sugar but rich in salts, of course not putting too much salt into their soup, for we must give something where the salt has been integrated, we will be able to heal those children. You see, you discover such things by developing an eye for what is going on. Bracket, Rudolf Steiner told the audience of something he had once observed. The people living in a particular region instinctively prefer a particular diet, and this counteracts a disease which is prevalent in the region. Close bracket. The appropriate diet would therefore be much better, particularly giving foods rich in salts to children in their childhood, rather than handing them over to psychoanalysts later in life. Take the opposite situation. Children who do not take in the impressions, letting them flow back, children with low sulfur levels are physically best treated by giving them as much fruit in their diet as possible, getting them to like fruit. And if the problem is already going much in a pathological direction, we try to get them to eat things that are aromatic, fruits that have aroma. For aroma has a powerful sulfurous element to it. And if it turns too pathological, you have to use sulfur directly for treatment. But you can see that it is exactly by looking at things spiritually that we also arrive at the treatment that is needed in a given case. It is important that one is never satisfied with the mere description of a phenomenon. This will only give you the symptomatology, but tries, as I have shown, to enter into the inner fabric of the organism. Now, you see, these are irregularities that arise when the lower element in a human being does not properly fit in with the upper, as it were, when the impressions gained in the upper, the head organization, do not meet with the right resonance in the organization of metabolism and limbs. Now, it may also be the case that, all in all, the eye organization, the astral, and the etheric come physical organization do not fit together. Let us say that the physical organization is too dense. What we then have before us is that the child is absolutely unable to let his or her astral body enter wholly into this dense physical organization. So the child gains an impression in the astral body. The astral body is able to stimulate the corresponding astrality of the metabolic system, but this stimulus does not continue on into the ether body and above all the physical body. We can observe this, see if it is the case, by saying, quote, March a bit, take five or six steps. Close quote. The child does not quite understand what he or she is meant to do, that is, they understand quite well what one is saying, but don't manage to get it into the legs. It is as if the legs were not prepared to take it in. We do most easily realize that the physical body is hardened too much and also does not want to take in thoughts so that the child seems to have learning difficulties. And we see it most clearly in children if we command them to do something that is supposed to be done with the legs and the children hesitate to set their legs at all in motion. Mentally such conditions, where the body gives the impression of being too heavy, will be accompanied by depressive melancholic moods. 
If on the other hand the legs don't want to wait for anyone to ask but always want to move, we have a disposition toward mania in the child. This may be quite minimal to begin with, but all these things first show themselves in the legs. So it should certainly be also part of observation to see what children are otherwise doing with their legs and their fingers. Look, children who best like to rest their hands and legs, we can also observe it in the hands, on something, letting them drop down, have the disposition for learning difficulties. Children who are always keeping their fingers moving, touching everything, their feet going everywhere, have a disposition to grow seriously manic and ultimately raving mad. The things we note most clearly in the limbs can be noticed in all activity. It is merely that it is less strongly evident, though particularly characteristic, when it comes to mental activities. Just consider how much the following is the case with some children. They learn some skill or other. Let us say they acquire the ability to draw a face in profile. They find it impossible to stop. Whenever they see someone, they want to draw their profile. It gets quite mechanical. That is a very bad sign in a child. And they won't be diverted from this. When they are involved in drawing a profile, I can say to them what I want, even offer them some goodies. But they stick to it. The profile must be drawn. This is connected with the maniacal character of the intellectualistic principle going beyond all bounds. On the other hand, the urge to do nothing, not to start work, even if all the necessary conditions are there, has to do with learning difficulties, which may be about to develop. All this shows how we can, in either direction, counteract learning disabilities and mania by learning to control our limbs in the regular way. And there you have the immediate transition to therapy, exactly for children with learning difficulties. When you have such a child before you, it will be necessary to guide his system of metabolism and limbs into mobility. This will stimulate the child's mind. Get them to do R-L-S-I and you'll see how that has an effect on their mania. If the child is maniacal and you know how it relates to the system of limbs and metabolism, get her or him to do M N. B, P, A, U. And again, you'll see how this influences the maniacal character. The point is that we must everywhere take note of the close connection between the physical come etheric and the soul and spirit, which still exists in children. We will then also arrive at the right methods of treatment. The end of Lecture 5